Hi, this is Shauna. Before we get to today's guest, I want to take a minute to learn more about you, the listener. We've put together a short survey at fueltalent.com slash podcast to gather information on who's listening and to give you a chance to make suggestions and comments about the show. I want What Fuels You to be a great resource for you and your interests, and I hope these interviews give you practical advice along with inspiration for your career and life. Help us continue to serve you better by going to fueltalent.com slash podcast. Thank you so much. Now let's start today's show. Hi, this is Shauna, the CEO and founder of Fuel Talent. One of the things I have loved most in my 25-year recruiting career has always been the stories that people tell. Stories of leadership, career choices, company ideas, and team building. My inspiration for starting the What Fuels You podcast came from being curious about people's lives and wanting to help share their stories. What path brought them to this place? What decisions did they make that led to failures and successes? Who influenced those decisions and what lessons were learned along the way? I hope you enjoy the What Fuels You podcast. Today's guest on the What Fuels You podcast is Craig Unger. Craig is the founder and CEO of Hyperproof, a security assurance and compliance operations platform transforming the way you manage and do the work. Craig is an expert in building technology businesses and teams. Prior to founding Hyperproof, Craig founded Azuqua and was a leader at Microsoft where he led the development of Microsoft Dynamics and Access. He has 30 years of experience building software used around the world. Craig loves technology and he is addicted to designing software that delights and disrupts. Welcome, Craig. So good to see you. I'm going to hit you with some rapid fire and uh, Mr. New Yorker. So what's your uh, favorite New York pizza joint? I really like Famous Ray's. I assume it's still there, 6th Avenue and West 11th in Manhattan. But that was more like a treat because we'd have to take the train there and that was a two fare zone. So I love it. My my house, my well, my house, my apartment was on 4th and 12th. So I know exactly where you're talking oh, about. Oh, you know where that is? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, but yeah. then I also had, um, I had one that was my favorite in... Uh, Brooklyn called JNR and had the best Sicilian. I like more cheese than sauce, by the way. Oh, of course. Hello. <laughs> yes. And what about your favorite bagels? Uh, we had, well, we had a couple places that was really interesting on Flatlands Avenue, which is where my high school was. We had dueling bagel shops that were on the corner. And after the movies, like late at night, past midnight, you'd go there in the winter. And then like the glass panes for these uh, stores would all be completely fogged up. And then you kind of walk in there and you just get, you know, overrun by the smell of them baking fresh bagels for the next morning. So uh, I don't even remember the names of the places, but it was those dueling bagel places. Oh, go I love that. Bagels okay. and butter in a paper bag and it would just sort of seep through the bag. That sounds so good. You're making me hungry. Okay. Mets or Yankees? Yankees. I, I had a feeling. Um, if, <laughs> if there was a book written about your life, what would it be called? You know, I... I don't know the exact title, but it would have to have the uh, reference to Brooklyn, you know, some Brooklyn boy or something, because that's kind of how I see my life is, you know, that in a way I took, you know, I was able to kind of glean the best out of that kind of um, upbringing, but then also be able to step aside from it and see some different things. So uh, it would be something around that. And I have so many amazing stories from that time in my life that I think it would just be a real fun you know, book or movie to write, um, but uh, I'm not that important. So, but it, you know, it's, it's interesting. It's like having lived there for so long and just all the different boroughs, I feel like Brooklyn ha uniquely has its own kind of like top rank. Like if I'm from Brooklyn, I have this certain amount of cred. I don't know why. Well, absolutely. Probably, no, you, right? see the Jersey, you see the Jersey shore like episodes and then you realize that none of them are actually from Brooklyn. They're from, they're from different Staten Island or Jersey, you know, but you know, right. there is something. But you're not like, yes, I'm from Staten Island. You're not bragging about or that. Queens, right. no, or Queens. Not. Yeah. You're like, I'm definitely bragging about being from Brooklyn. Okay. Yeah, are you mountains or water? Uh, well, I used to be mountains. And then when I went to, when I was in Seattle, but after 30 years, just moved to Florida. And now it's definitely water, including a boat, yeah. which I was never into before. And, you know, just trying to. You gotta have your boat. Yeah. Here, yeah. What are three words that. Uh, I guess others would use or that you would use to describe, hopefully those are aligned, your leadership style. I think they would say very inclusive would be one word. Um, I think they would say determined and they would say very customer focused. Those are good ones. Uh, what's your biggest pet peeve? Professionally or just with friends? In or? life, 
No, just in general. I think my biggest pet peeve, you see it all over the place, is it's a, such a great question, is oversimplification. Because I think what happens when people oversimplify things is that's when they get oppositional. You know, they have to fit their viewpoint into, you know, a specific, you know, shape to match others. I think a lot of the nuance has left, you know, conversation, politics, everything, really. And I think when you bring the nuance back in, you realize that we don't all have to think exactly the same, but we can really respect each other and learn from one another. And I think there was more of that when I was younger and even the way I was raised to ask questions. Now it feels like you got to keep your questions to yourself. Yes. And we were born to question, right? And we were born, that's how you stay curious and learn for sure. Okay. Are you an introvert or an extrovert? Oh, I'm a big extrovert. Yeah. So sure. I was going to say extrovert, but I ask it a lot on the podcast. And so many people surprise me that I thought were extroverts that say that they're an introvert that was trained to be an extrovert because I'm always interviewing CEOs and like, it's kind of part of the job. You have to be an extrovert, but people are like, no, I'm actually an introvert, but my job requires me to be an extrovert. I'm off the chart. Like every personality I'm like off the charts, extrovert. I could tell you're an extrovert and I'm very, very similar, but I think what some people might feel, because I even feel it as well as an extrovert, is when you're in this particular role, you're doing so much talking both internally to folks and then outside that even if you're an extrovert, it could get quite tiring. So you could be yeah. a tired extrovert. That's different than, I'm kind of a tired extrovert. That's different than being an introvert. Yeah. Well, that makes total sense. And also people get confused about extroversion and introversion because they think of it as being outgoing or like shy, but it's actually where you get your energy. And I, yeah. I think of like, you bring energy. I remember meeting you and being like, I want more of this person. Like you bring energy and I hopefully get energy from other people. I and do. as we get older, yeah. we like cut those people out who don't give us energy, right? Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. tell me, we started talking about Brooklyn. Walk me through, I remember meeting you. Um, you're a proud New Yorker, but I know that your childhood wasn't so easy peasy. Um, let's just say like the wind wasn't really at your back. Um, like people might assume as a Harvard grad and, you know, Microsoft and entrepreneur. Tell me about some of the pivotal moments, both positive and negative, I guess, that helped shape your childhood. Yeah, well, there's a lot there. I mean, you know, we grew up in Brooklyn and we really didn't have much in the way of means, but we had some very loving uh, grandparents who worked really hard to make sure that we had some of the things that we did need. And those, my grandparents, I was on my mom's side, are both Holocaust survivors. And I'll never forget my grandfather just getting up, you know, at the crack of dawn to drive in his little Chevy Chevelle, I think it was, or <laughs> Chevette, this really small one. And he'd drive into Manhattan and he wouldn't get back till super late. And then he would eat dinner. And then 10 minutes later, he'd be snoozing on the couch. And I was like, wow, my grandfather really, really works hard for us. And I used to go in, he, uh, he you know, started off carrying furniture on his back. Um, due to malnutrition, he's five foot three. But after doing all the physical labor he did, even though I'm like six three, he could shake my hand and I'd fall to my knees. That's how strong he was. So, you know, he set an amazing example for us. And also, you know, we knew that we had a very important opportunity that um, him and my grandmother sacrificed for. They lost their entire families, both all their brothers and sisters, and they were large families and their parents and all cousins. Uh, my grandmother came uh, to the United States. Uh, they met at a displaced persons camp in Italy where my mother was born. So she's kind of technically you know, Italian. And then my grandmother came to the U.S., but my grandfather couldn't get in. So he had to work for another few years. They were apart. Then they came to the U.S. and had my uncle uh, uh, seven, eight years after my uh, after my mom. So and, and then my mom had me and my brother very young. So in a way, we were kind of one big family versus, you know, being three generations. We kind of all felt like kids of my grandfather. Did you guys live together? We did. We did. After for a while, we didn't. But my parents also were divorced when I was uh, around 12. And then uh, we uh, my grandparents had a two family row house in Brooklyn. And a lot of folks made them into illegal three families by taking the garage and converting half the garage into an apartment. And it's about a 350 square foot apartment. My mom would basically sleep in the living room. Uh, she ended up going back to law school, by the way. But that's that's kind of we lived uh, in that apartment with my grandmother. And when my mom went back to school, uh, when my grandmother would be the one who would greet us, for instance, which was great. She was there to greet us when we got back from high school. And, you know, she was always there to, you know, feed us or put us, put a few dollars in our pocket. So, you know, it was, it wasn't easy, but, you know, we had a very close tight knit, um, family back then. And that's just kind of what felt normal for me. Uh, you know, and you're, so your, your parents, your grandparents on your mother's side were the Holocaust survivors and they were the ones who financially kind of helped support you and lived with you. And then what about on your dad's side? 
Well, on my dad's side, they um, unfortunately, my grandfather was um, he he died early, uh, and actually, you know, I'll share he he was murdered in New York. So when I, that was the first, that was kind of when I was six years old. That, well, that's all I remember. Let's just put it that way. From my very young uh, period of time, when I was very young because you know it was just such a disaster. He was a wonderful guy, um, and then my grandmother kind of she was never the same. So you know, we didn't really we weren't really close after that period of time, um, but they had come to the U.S. one generation before. So they missed, you know, thankfully they missed the Holocaust, uh, et cetera. Yeah. And so as far as being Holocaust survivors, is that something that they kind of wanted to keep that story alive to kind of like never again, never forget that type of thing? Or did they completely assimilate and try to kind of move forward? Neither of those. They didn't assimilate. I had a whole bunch of people who I thought were really my aunts and uncles, but they were just super close friends of our family that I used to call aunt and uncle, like like literally a dozen or more people. Um, and it was just such a tight community. Um, of course, they did also assimilate. You know, I mean, they're you know, they of course obviously spoke the language and and all that. But um, but at the same time, they also and in my grandparents' case, they really didn't want to talk too much about the Holocaust because it was too painful. But they did. Uh, like Spielberg wanted to talk to my grandmother and she didn't actually want to do it. Um, my, my grandfather and my, um, my grandfather and my grandmother both did talk to me. And then um, before my grandfather passed, he also talked to my niece about it when she was doing the project. So we did hear some stories, but it was never something he wanted to really talk about in great depth. Yeah. That's, that's just an unbelievable, it's just unbelievable when I hear these stories um, and I think they're important to keep alive for sure, especially because that generation is, is passing on. And for like my kids and our kids' kids, important, obviously, to keep those stories alive. Um, and they are very important to my kids, which I'm very happy to say. They, under, they understand. So at least in this generation, it didn't lose too much. Significance. Yeah. How old are your kids now? So 19 and 17, one is a freshman uh, over at USC in California. And uh, my younger is uh, a junior uh, in high school in Seattle. Wow. Yeah, that's crazy. So things have gone. I haven't seen you in a while. In my mind, they're like, time stood still. It's, I'm like, they've got to be like 13 by now. And I'm like, yeah, I guess time did move on. That's well, my, old, my older is like a half inch shorter than me. So oh, it's, that is it's, nuts. it's very different. <laughs> yeah. You must be proud. USC is like near impossible to get into. That's very, very proud of, of both kids. Uh, him for what he's done. My younger is really into aviation. Uh, so he spent few thousand hours uh, on flight sim and then he's uh, in an aviation high school called Riceback Aviation in Seattle and he's done internships with the Blue Angels and he's done projects at Boeing and he's just That's uh, amazing yeah, I'm always blown amazing. away when kids know what they want to do at that age I'm like I had no clue like speaking of which so how did what did you know what you wanted to do I know you were like Mr. Math and super smart um so who kind of introduced you to um education in that way? I mean, were your parents educated like you? My mom had dropped out of Brooklyn College, but then eventually she went back and, and then went to law school. So, um, but, and my dad had graduated from Long Island University and he was like um, kind of an accountant. He would do um, auditing of financial firms, et cetera. So he was really facile with numbers. So when me and my brother were younger, he would give me and my brother math problems and we'd have to try to solve them in our heads really quick. So eventually, uh, they put me up against a calculator and, you know, as long as you kind of give me the problem, it's not too many digits before you start entering the calculator, I used to be able to beat the calculator. So that's how I kind of knew that I, I was like, I had some affinity for math. Um, and then really, I just, you know, it's once I started getting closer to high school, I guess I started to get, you know, really nice grades. And I, I really looked at it more of as, Hey, I, you know, I could do really well in school. I probably should. It's probably really a good thing for, you know, my future, et cetera. So I started, really concentrating then, but I don't think there was like an overly, there was a focus on education in the sense that I know we, they all wanted us to go to college and that kind of thing, but there wasn't a, you know, a, a massive focus on excelling, you know, in your grades, mm -hmm. and being advanced and all those things. Um, and, and, and also people then just didn't know as much, right? You just didn't know, you know, what is the way to take a child and perhaps accelerate them. So it's just a different generation, but, um, but yeah, the yeah. basics were there. And who planted the seed around like Harvard or in general, what were you looking at? Did you have, I mean, cause today it's like people have college counselors and it's just like, oh, you need to go like 
build a house in Guatemala and you should probably take Mandarin <laughs> and you should probably do coding. I mean, parents are just so okay. helicopter versus yeah. how we were raised. Oh um, yeah, no, my, my who mom- was, who, was, who was influencing kind of how you approached that period of your life? Well, what happened was, you know, my mom was, was um, she wanted us to do well, but she was also very busy because she just went back to law school. She was a new lawyer. So we, me and my brother would, you know, kind of fend for ourselves, grab dinner and, you know, do what we needed to do that way. But academically, I started focusing on it. And um, I didn't, I, I didn't in high school or college, I really wasn't somebody who connected as much with the whole um, guidance community. I was kind of just off, you know, doing it a little bit on my own. I thought if my grades are good enough, maybe they'll carry me. But I, I never thought about anything like Harvard at all until the very end of high school. My brother is a year ahead of me. And he went to State University in New York at Albany. So, you know, I thought I'd apply to, you know, the state universities, the city universities and a few others. But what happened was um, uh, when I was a junior, I was called down to the guidance counselor's office. And a very fortunate thing happened where the uh, somebody who was recruiting for Harvard and was kind of recruiting in the inner city came in uh, to meet people. And I don't know who else she met, but I was called down and we had a really nice conversation and she actually put it right in front of me. She said, hey, would you consider applying to Harvard? And of course, you know, I was like, well, yeah, I mean, I'd love to. So what happened was I ended up applying early action to give myself the best chance, which is where you're here in December. And I remember I, uh, when the, when the uh, answers were out, I didn't wait for the mail. I called up on the phone. And back then it was before all these IT systems. So they were actually turning pages in book. And I'm thinking they're turning the pages of my life here. And I said, you know, Craig Unger, da da da, and then they're they're turning pages and they go admitted, and I I was kind of you know expecting rejected, uh, I mean accepted, who knows? But I didn't know I I wasn't tuned to admitted, so I basically didn't understand what he said. And I'm like, could you repeat that? He said admitted, and then I said, can you look it up one more time? My name is Craig Unger, and he's like, yes, you've been admitted. He was annoyed at me, and I was like, thank you very much. Hung up the That's phone amazing. and just went, yeah, darting out. And my my mom was working, my brother was already in college. He was. Uh, and it couldn't, you know, this is before cell phones, so you couldn't necessarily get to him if he wasn't in his room. My grandmother was out with her little carriage shopping. And so I just went bouncing out of the, uh, of the house into the block telling all my neighbors that I got in, which was, uh, which was actually truly amazing. So it's very, very fortunate. Oh, it is super, truly amazing. Describe for me and I guess the people listening, like what your neighborhood was like. And I mean, cause there's Brooklyn, there's all sorts of different neighborhoods in Brooklyn. Where specifically are you from and where, I guess, are you still in touch with your high school friends and, and what types of things are they doing relative to what you're doing? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's really, uh, it's kind of what you might expect. It's the gamut. I am in touch with some of them. In fact, I went to my um, 25th high school reunion, which was an absolute blast because sometimes people in that part of the world in Brooklyn, they kind of stay, you know, very uh, Brooklyn where, you know, you've got their chains and all that. And, you know, the, just some of the styles, which was just awesome to go back to. Uh, but my neighborhood was a pretty typical neighborhood in Brooklyn. We were on closer to Queens, we had the Canarsie section of Brooklyn. Um, and for us, it was attached brick row houses, not the really nice ones, like the brownstones that you would see maybe in downtown Brooklyn. These were built in the late 60s, pretty compact, um, you know, and again, two families with a garage that was often turned into three families. Um, and I would say probably hundreds of people around the city block, maybe 400 people around one city block. So just an absolute, you know, huge density of people, which was really great because it, it socializes you, right? You have to interact with a lot of people growing up there. Oh, yeah, completely. And so... Um... Are there people that, I guess, if I went back and interviewed them and said, tell me about Craig in high school, are you different now than you were then? Or are you kind of the same guy? I mean, I'm a little different now just having, I mean, I guess we're all different in a way, but I, I'm not radically different. Like they wouldn't, like they wouldn't say, oh yeah, he was like a bookwormy guy or something like that. Um, I wasn't, you know, I played volleyball for a little bit. I wasn't a massive athlete or anything like that, but I always had a lot of friends and I like to socialize. I like to have good times, you know, and um, you know, I think people, people who know me now would say, yeah, you really didn't change too much, yeah. you know, the way your personality is. And, uh, yeah, I had a really good time in high school actually too. I had a great time in high school and a great time in yeah. college. So, I love that. Are your parents still there in Brooklyn? My mom has moved to Florida, to the East coast of Florida. And my dad, he passed a few years ago, but he was in Queens. I'm so sorry. He, yeah. No, I'm no. In Queens. Yeah. yeah. He was in, uh, so they must, they must 
be super proud. That's so great. And so when you went to Harvard, you studied applied math and computer science. Was that with an intention of something or did somebody say, hey, these would be great majors? Like what were it's going through your mind or do you remember? Yeah, I love doing computer stuff and I did a lot of computer uh, programming on my own. We saved up from like I had a paper route and saved up for our first computer. My brother and I, we kind of went half and half and uh, I started writing programs by kind of copying them out of these, you know, Byte Magazine and other books and things like that and learned to program myself. And then I did some uh, math science fairish type projects programming. So I knew I loved it. And when I went in there, I knew I, I wanted to do some computer science, but I also loved math. That was, that was, you know, something I found really fun. And I was on the math team and I competed for the, um, for New York city uh, on their math team against other cities. So I, I knew I loved that. And I just figured, hey, maybe it's, you know, I actually thought I would like to do math, pure math, and maybe be a professor. But, you know, I thought also my brother at that time was also going to medical school. So we had to be, you know, I wasn't going to be able to do a lot of grad school. So I thought, let me do something where I can, you know, go get a reasonable job. And then maybe, you know, when I retire, I can teach. I did spend three years in college teaching. That was as a course assistant. My first year, I worked in the student union. And the, the second through fourth year, I was a course assistant for um, second year calculus and linear algebra. So I really enjoyed that. I had a great time teaching. But at, at the end of it, I decided let's just mix them both and I'll have you know a nice career because you know, programming, et cetera. So I thought I was going to be a programmer, which I never ended up being a programmer, but that's a different story. But maybe. at least you understand how it all works. Cause I know you got um, then recruited to Microsoft of all companies. I, I love that Microsoft brings so much talent into the Seattle area. How did that happen? Well, I, there was a, a gentleman who was three years ahead of me and he was a senior when I was a freshman and he was my course assistant for calculus, second year calculus when I got there. And he was instrumental in me becoming a course assistant. So he had already kind of had that impact on my life and he was going to Microsoft. He came back um, when I was a junior, I was walking around in the science center and I saw him and he got a hold of me and he's like, you should really think about, you know, applying to be an intern. At Microsoft. And at that point, again, we were pretty modest in terms of our means. I'd never been west of the Mississippi. So, um, you know, I said, yeah, you know, let's, let's, that'd be great. So I interviewed, I was, you know, flown out in my junior year and I had an interview with the Excel team uh, and they offered me an internship uh, for the summer between my junior and senior year. And um, I worked on a feature of Excel, very little known feature at that time called Solver, which is kind of like an optimizer and Excel optimizes your various cells. Loved it. And uh, they were kind enough to make an offer to come back. So I went back to Microsoft after graduating and I went back to work on Excel. And what did you think of Seattle? What was your first impression? Well, when I got there, uh, my first impression, and it really was really a first impression, was coming off the plane. I was going to rent a car and we were going to be Microsoft housing. And there was um, a, a woman who was probably not much different in age than me. Maybe she was 19 or 20. And when I when I come up to the, you know, to the window, she's like, hello, sir, how may I help you? And I was just flabbergasted that she <laughs> called me, sir. So I remember when I got, you know, again, pre-cell phone, but when I got to my apartment, I called up my mom and I'm like, you got to see this place. This The woman at the airport, she called me, sir, and everything is new. It's like, basically, I didn't really know that people lived the way they live in Seattle. I didn't really understand it. I thought the way I grew up was normal. And I found out how really abnormal it was. But uh, it was like a green, beautiful Emerald City. You know, I mean, it was just, it was incredible. Yeah. And you ended up um, accepting a role there right after school, which I know um, Microsoft loves to recruit straight from the internship program. They obviously loved you. Um, was your intention to just do it for a little while and ended up being 21 years? Or were you like, I mean, a lot of people stay at Microsoft for a long time. What kept you there for so long? Well, so I thought I would leave by the time I was 30. So I thought I'd be there nine years. And my goal was to was to get to a point where I could be responsible for uh, a lot of the features and design as basically a product manager, but Microsoft calls them program managers. I could be maybe the, the group program manager of a product of significance, maybe by the time I was 30, right? And I thought that'd be great. And then I can make a transition to do something a little more entrepreneurial. My grandfather was entrepreneurial. And I mean, even, you know, my mom started her own law practice, et cetera. And, you know, it's something I wanted to do. Um, but, you know, Microsoft was awesome. And I kept learning and I, I did end up doing that uh, kind of group program manager role for Microsoft Access. But I was just learning so much that I ended up staying. Uh, and then I just kept on. I did a little bit intra of entrepreneurship at Microsoft. I built yeah. um, some things from scratch there, which actually scratched the itch a little bit. 
And then I did some other things that were more in the general, general management and like leading some other teams. And I was like, this is great. I'm just learning so much. But by the time I was 42, I was like, okay, you know, got to get real here. Either you're going to go do this or you will retire out of Microsoft, which is fine. But I decided to go do it then. I went a little bit earlier, but I also went through a divorce and I wanted to, when I was in my mid thirties and I was like, I want to keep that part kind of constant. So I was thinking yeah. about it mid thirties, but I did it. Yeah, uh, that makes sense. A lot of people, you know, they have a hard time leaving. It takes a lot of courage. You, you end up um, having the stability, making a ton of money, having a little bit more. I mean, I know it's like a grind, but it can be, you know, not a lifestyle, but it's just like, you just get comfortable. Um, and frankly, some companies look at candidates who get Microsoft for too long. It's like that perfect rub of like, what's the, the too long. Um, and it just takes a lot of courage to leave. What gave you the confidence? Did you have an idea and that gave you the courage or did you just say enough's enough? Cause I have this like cutoff date cause I'm 42. Like what was it? Well, the kids were getting to a point where I knew that they would be fine, you know, financially and all that, everything, all that was settled. Um, and uh, it was partially the age piece. I did not know exactly what I wanted to do, but what I realized after a number of, of kind of false starts on brainstorming ideas was that if you're in a job that's as all encompassing as Microsoft, you're not likely to really put in the requisite time. So I thought the only way this is ever going to happen is if I make time for it to happen. So I decided to leave and, you know, and you know, I was, I was very fortunate. You know, I, I think I, I don't think I really did, did anything that in, in that respect the hard way because I was at Microsoft for, for 20 years and it allowed me the ability to say, look, if I, if it totally fails, my, basically what I told myself is if it fails really badly in five years, I, I could always go to a large company, perhaps back to Microsoft, had great relationships there. Um, but what I also told myself was, if you know, if I don't go and do this, that I'm always going to kind of think, you know, why did I spend years 21 through 30 at Microsoft of my career? I mean, um, you know, at Microsoft or or another large company. And I figured right. if I go out and it fails, I could actually go back to a large company and spend another 10 years there, and I won't have you know the worry because I will have already tried it. So I thought, from any perspective, it's going to be an improvement. You know, I think it's I think it's great advice and. Um... I never know who's listening to the podcast, but when sometimes when people say sentences, I'm like, I really hope there's someone who's at a large company who doesn't have the courage to leave is listening because it's so true. It's like you've got, when you're thinking from a recruiter's perspective, you're thinking like stability on the resume, which clearly you had. And then you're thinking diversity on the resume, which is big company, small company, startup, risk, low risk, you know, all of the different things. And you can always go back to a, a big company. And, it, and it's the question of like, what will I regret more doing it or always wondering and, and the what if I hadn't done it? Like, it's just, yes, it's, it's yes, weighing I mean, those things. And it would have always bugged you if you hadn't done it. Absolutely. And um, what I tell people there is if you go to a startup and you see, you're going to be super hireable by a large company. And if you go to a startup and you fail, you're going to be super hireable by a large company yeah. because, you know, they, they love what yes. you learned when you actually fail. And then the other thing is, you know, I, uh, you know, maybe there's a couple of exceptions here. I don't want to, I can't claim to know everybody's circumstance, but I will bet you that near most every person who's listening to this podcast, the true limiter in their life is time and not money. As And, and everybody knows that when they, you know, when they're outside of work and they're just thinking about their life, they understand that their limiter is time and not money. But it is so amazing, the fear that is in people that makes them act as if money is the limiter. It's actually truly stunning. It's totally I, I stunning. agree with that. I totally yeah. agree with that. Tell me about Azuqua. What was the business? Uh, what did it do? What was the business model? And how did you come up with the idea? So with Azuqua, you know, uh, my thought, and I just had a co-founder for that. And it's interesting, we came up with kind of the same idea at the uh, same time, and we ended up talking about it and decided to end up doing the company, which interestingly was not what I had planned. I thought I was going to do a single founder there. We ended up doing a co-founder, uh, you know, kind of arrangement on that. But the idea was um, cloud services were really exploding. You know, at that time, uh, Netscope, I think it was, they, were, they had their study that would said, like, you know, largest, larger enterprises had more than a thousand services if you really look across all of their different businesses. And the problem is all the data was siloed. Right? You can't get the data out. Uh, different people have access to the different services. So 
sometimes you don't even have the access to get the data out. So how do you actually bring all the data together and make sure that you can really construct the business processes that really make your organization go, whether that's you know, sales or marketing or customer success or you know, whatever it is. So Azuko was a low-code integration and workflow platform. Think of it as like a box and arrow type of environment where you say, hey, I want to get this data out of, let's say, SharePoint. And then I want to transform it to a little bit of kind of low to no code programming on it. And then I want to send it on its way into, you know, Salesforce or dynamic CRM or what have you. Um, and you can do that multi-step and you can run those workflows over time and monitor to make sure that your business process is really being synthesized properly. And so that was the business that, you know, that we set up and built. Um, we had a, a nice product that we thought was super competitive in the industry. Um, there was a lot of interest from Microsoft in acquiring Azuko. We decided it wasn't in the best interest of the company. We built it for, um, and, and there's some others also who are interested. We built it for five years. And, you know, we raised a couple rounds, a Series A and a Series B. Um, and uh, we had a lot of nice customers, GE and Netflix and just, just a bunch of great customers. And then we ended up selling it to Okta. Um, I had left about nine months before and, or, and had started in the interim hyperproof. So it was very, very interesting on a number of dimensions because when I when I started Hyperproof, I didn't know uh, what would be the disposition of Azuqua and had you know not much salary for about five years. So I was like, hmm, how much longer can I go with you know not much salary? And so I decided to you know take a run at it a second time, but that was was not an easy call. Yeah, that is a tough call. How did you come up with the name Azuqua? What does it mean? Uh, well, Azuqua was just based on kind of. Uh, really like water and sky and really being able to connect everything in between. That was basically what it is, ah. kind of like Azure sky, aqua and water, and we can connect all of your cloud services. Yeah. And the co-founder uh, conversation I always think is interesting because um, I don't have a co-founder. It's just me. I'm the only, I guess, owner, founder. Um, and I'm always, it's, it's like a marriage, right? You go into something and, and it's a little bit of a rolling of the dice. Is there a vetting process and how do you look at that? Do you just look at it? I guess, what are the different components? Is it skill set and, and complementary skill sets? Is it also personality? Is also, is there a vetting process around like, what do we want out of this? Is this a lifestyle business? Do we want to sell? Do we want to, like, what are the things that you look for? Oh, you're hitting so many of them. So we actually, we went in, into Techstars when we started that company. And it, what was interesting was Techstars had a really nice vetting process. What they did uh, during the, I think it was like about a 12 week session is we went away for one of those weekends and they had a very deep kind of questionnaire based um, uh, an interrogatory session where you would kind of ask one another all of your kind of deepest desires, fears, and different criteria. And there would be kind of questions like, if you knew you'd be successful, would you start a teenage girl makeup company? Right, because they know everybody in there is doing a tech company. So they want to take you out and say, what meaning, what's important to you? Is the success right. so they're like, right. important part, or is it the impact, or is it who you work with, and all these other things. And so that was helpful to kind of figure out whether we were aligned. And I think at that time we were aligned, but, but you know, that's like necessary, but not sufficient, because what happens is, is you get into you know these crazy scenarios, you know, startup where you know you're a paycheck away from running out of money, or some acquisition offer comes in, and you know you get a real referendum on what the different founders' you know idea of success is, et cetera, et cetera. And it's it's impossible even through you through any vetting to really go through all the scenarios that you're going to face. It's a little bit like you know the first thing that dies in the war is the battle plan. But certainly, if you don't see eye to eye on some of the big questions it's probably not a great idea to, to uh, found a company together. Right. And it's also just even in work style because, because it's um, how do we deal with conflict? And, and also if there is a conflict, who makes the final decision? It's all yeah, of it. And, and, and it's like, do we have overlapping skill sets and who's in what lane? And are you threatened by me? And who needs the glory and all of it? I mean, is there so many layers to it? It all came up. I mean, it, all those things came up. So for instance, my co-founder, it was interesting because he and I were very overlapped in skills. I was maybe a little bit more geared toward the product and he was a little bit more geared to the go-to-market, but I had some interesting go-to-market skills and he certainly had a bunch of interesting product skills. So that's interesting because then you end up with, you know, maybe two opinions on like almost everything instead of just two opinions on things where you need two opinions. 
So, you know, that causes some, some stress that you have to, you know, look out for. Um, and yeah, I think there is a little bit of who's doing the speaking for the company and those kinds of things, because, you know, in truth, when you're founding a company, you are sacrificing for a dream, right? And hopefully the dream works out, but on the way to the dream working out, you want to be able to kind of participate in those little victories where, you know, a publication publics, uh, publishes something about you, or um, you're able to talk at an event or something like that. Um, so you have to really, you have to be sensitive to your co-founder and what it is they're looking for too, and just take the opportunities to really, you know, share in whatever you can. Now, in our case, I think I mentioned that maybe I didn't, but he was the CEO and I was kind of the CPO, CTO. Um, and so, you know, there's some different roles, but then uh, when it came time to fundraising and, and, and accelerators and all that stuff, it really is about both of you. So, you know, some of it is just, you got to see what the personalities are, who likes to do what, but you have to be sensitive to what people mm -hmm. are trying to get out of the startup experience. A lot of people will only, if they have, you know, the fortune of having it take off, the biggest thing they'll get out of the startup experience is incredible experience and learning yeah. and connections, which is great. But that that means that as let's say co-founders, you want to make sure that those experiences are available to each of you because that's yes. a huge part of how you get paid. Yeah, it's it's like your working MBA. Like it's like if we're just yeah. going to do this, then at least we have to be growing, and it has to be some sort of career development um, along the way, and and tons of learning even from the failures, which is arguably obviously where you learn the most. And so you had a big exit. Um, huge congrats. Thank you. Really, really psyched. Um, and you started to kind of, I guess, build hyperproof along the way. So hyperproof, we there's no slowing down. Well, actually, I started uh, like nine months before we had that exit. So I was still thinking, hmm, don't know what's going to happen with Azuqua, but you know, wanted to do uh, hyperproof uh, and just kind of, you know, dove into it. And then that was around August of eighteen. Azuk was sold in March of 19. And so we were about nine months old. And I was thinking at the time, we were only a handful of people, but it was an interesting referendum on how serious I was about the idea and the concept. It was also an interesting referendum on why I was going to kind of continue to, let's say, work in software and, and or, you know, versus either just changing disciplines, trying something totally different, or even not working for a while, whatever. Um, but, you know, I kind of looked at it and looked at what we were doing with Hyperproof and the social value of it uh, and really got enthused and said, you know, this is great not to just work on something that is a software product to sell, but something that could actually really, really help people. And I was like, yeah, let's 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 make sure we keep doing it. And it's been a really nice, you know, run since and a lot of fun. And another cool name. How'd you come up with this name and how'd you get it? Like, how is that name available? <laughs> it was hyperproof.io, hyperproof.com. And probably if I want to pay about uh, yeah, I don't know, half a million bucks or something, yeah. but um, we haven't needed it. No, but I mean, I think for me, and you know, hyperproof was about the idea that, you know, in terms of people who need to get compliant and show their stakeholders that they are compliant, like our, our watchwords and mantra was, you know, how do we help companies keep their promises? We eventually evolved it to how do we bring trust to life? And so, that's effectively what compliance is about. You do it so that you can actually build trust in your ecosystem. Sometimes you start it because you need to close a sale and you can't close a sale until you're compliant. Um, others start it because they know it's the right thing to do. And it actually is an interesting vantage point into their security program to make sure that it really meets a set of expectations that's associated with a compliance program. Um, and what I realized is that one of the key things that was really missing from that process was the ability to evidence it and demonstrate it, right? And it, it's the most common thing that people were, were struggling with in the process was an audit's coming. I got to run around my corporation. I got to go get all this proof um, from all these people. I've um, got to put it together in, you know, a Google Drive, a SharePoint, wherever. And then I've got to actually show point in time to uh, the auditors that I'm being compliant. And so we thought there was a lot to be done around taking what really tended to be a pretty discrete process where you would do it only when you needed to and make it more of a continuous process. We can automate some of the collection. You can do really smart things and looking for the proof and running tests on it. And also just generally making everybody aware of what needs to be done. So that's why we put the name proof or in hyper proof, uh, you know, to make sure that it's kind of the highest form 
of being able to show the great work you're doing. And we thought it was really important for our, for the folks who would be hyperproof users, because again, we felt that they were doing great work, but when they went into the audits, they were like nervous because they really weren't able to evidence that work. So we really wanted to empower those folks to do their best and be confident going to these audits. And so hyperproof, you know, really kind of stood the test of time as a good name for what we've been trying to do. Well, and I also liked the way that it was explained. There's like a little um, video on your website that you, where you're speaking about it. And, and also where I read about the timing, how obvious it was based on all the things happening, like with Facebook and the problem that you were solving and how it was like the convergence of it, just like at the perfect time. But saying that kind of these audits happen in in segments and in, in moments and different times and that you're kind of, it's like an evergreen um audit like it's just constantly happening in the background which I feel like that alone would make me as a customer just feel calmer knowing that I'm not gonna have any surprises well exactly yeah it makes you much more uh confident going into the audit it makes the audits a lot simpler to carry out because the proof that you need is already in hyperproof by the time you need to give it to the auditor and then the other problem that you would see in kind of previous previous to hyperproof would be People would get through the audit and they really wouldn't consider their compliance work for another nine months until they had to prepare right. for the next audit. And so right. what happened is the security stance at most companies would really devolve after uh, after these audits were done. And with Hyperproof, you know, you're working on it through the year. It's being automated for you. You get notifications when, for instance, proof isn't isn't what we call fresh or up to, you know, you know, at, at whatever frequency you feel like you need it. Um, and so you just know the whole time that you're, you know, doing a good job at it. And uh, and it takes away a lot of the kind of, um, you know, the manual work so that you can really, you know, pop up a level and say, what are we really trying to get done here as a company? One of the greatest things about Hyperproof is that it allows you to really model out what is a set of, they're called controls in the product, but they're basically processes that we follow, you know, card key readers and employee onboarding and offboarding and user access control and all those kinds of things. What are those processes that we're going to use that are really going to make us and all of our stakeholders you know, super confident in the work that we're doing. And you actually free up a lot more time to think about that. And the other thing that Hyperproof does is once you come up with those controls or processes, you can use them very broadly across a whole range of different frameworks, compliance frameworks. So the ones that, for instance, the, the uh, US government asked you to do, or the ones that the EU asked you to do. And so you get a lot of this kind of reuse benefit. And so you feel like you're only having to do things once. It's never on the shelf and collecting dust. It's always there working for you. And so that allows you to really over time, if you measure it over years, we've had customers for years now that have just enhanced their overall security stance by the work that they do in Hyperproof. So it, it's it's great because, you know, I think just what's gone on in the last, I'd say five to 10 years is some of the focus has moved from these big data breaches, don't get me wrong, still super important and scary when they happen, to what are you actually doing about it? If you actually look at the fines that are levied by, let's say the SEC has started recently, um, just kind of wading into doing the fines, you'd be surprised. It's not really about, oh, you had a breach. It's about you had a breach, and now we're looking at what you did over the next six months to a year, and you didn't do anything about it. And that's where compliance comes in, right? So that mm. you have to really be thoughtful about what you're doing to make sure that you're preventing these issues. And most recently, there's draft proposed rules that are asking companies to take their compliance, not their breaches, but the actual work they're doing to enforce their compliance and report on it in their 10Ks. So this whole area of compliance is actually just growing like, you know, so quickly in terms of the number of frameworks, the number of scenarios you can need to do it in. They're asking VCs and they're starting to ask, I should say, they're proposing to ask VCs and private equity firms to actually do all kinds of compliance, financial and ESG, you know, environmental and, and social governance com compliance on all of their portfolio companies. You know, they're asking now uh, car dealerships to do more of the frameworks that banks would need to do because they're originating so many loans. And so this workload is just, it's gonna grow out of control and we're not even going to be able to staff it with enough people to do all this work unless we step in with a product like Hyperproof that makes it a lot more cost effective to do it and allows you to leverage what you've already done. So sorry, it's a little bit long well, you just You just answered my question because I was going to say, like, can you give me some use case examples of ways that Hyperproof can come and like solve 
I guess, problems that are coming up today. And I guess it's just going to be kind of endless. Can you um, explain the business model and like maybe a couple of examples? I read some testimonials on the website, but like a couple of examples of um, ways, I guess, if I'm a company and I'm, I'm asking you, which every company wants to know, especially right now in a down market, like, tell me about the ROI. What's the business model? And like, yeah. how is this saving me money? Yeah, so I mean, I would just take one good example there with you look at an early customer, we've had Nutanix, um, they're a large, uh, you know, tech company, public company. And, you know, they they really had a very difficult time getting all the, the different compliance programs across all their business lines. They have different products, the products are different uh, maturity levels, some of them have thought about security and compliance, and some haven't. So, you know, they were just spending way too much time doing way too little in the compliance area when it was all manual. And so we connected with them very early. They saw the Hyperproof platform and they started centralizing the controls that I'm talking about, the processes that are really going to work across all parts of our business. And then adding in the automations that we talked about, automated tests, and then getting all that information out to everybody who needed to know it. And so we, there's a strong work management part of Hyperproof that lets you, you know, create tasks and assign tasks to people and make sure the stuff that needs to get done is getting done. Um, Nutanix started doing that and they expanded to, you know, between 15 and 20 frameworks that they were working within Hyperproof. And they were seeing, you know, and, and typically a customer would see 30 to 60%, sometimes 70% reduction in the amount of preparation time you need to, for your audits. And that naturally gives them the ability to just cover so much more of their products and naturally allows them to then keep so much more of their ecosystem, right? All the stakeholders, mm. employees and stockholders and partners and all that much safer. And that's what Hyperproof has allowed them to do. And how do you charge them? So right now, the way it works is if you want to be compliant with a particular framework, you know, some of these may be familiar to listeners, SOC or ISO or NIST, GDPR, I'm sure will be familiar to folks. Um, we charge by the framework. We don't charge by the user uh, very purposefully because we want to make sure that anybody in an organization or even outside of an organization, which we can talk about, who has something to add to the compliance process, something that'll help keep us and the ecosystem safer, that they can do that and that there's no headwind in doing that. So if you as a company say, we're gonna do these two or three frameworks, we charge an annual subscription to manage those frameworks and hyperproof and we get a very wide range of capabilities against that. There are a couple subscription levels. So there are some features specifically for larger organizations that may be doing compliance across multiple entities. For instance, subsidiaries or different um, geographies or business units, they can upgrade to the higher SKU types. That's one way that uh, maybe we charge them for those advanced capabilities. And then we scale up by the number of these frameworks. And the one other thing we've done in the last couple of years that we will continue to do is we've added different modules that are in addition to the core compliance scenario. So today we have a risk register that allows the company to track their all up risks. These are weather events and you know different, whatever the event is, political events, et cetera. And that strategic risk can connect back to the compliance that the team is doing at an operational level. So what happens is an automation doesn't run or somebody makes a mistake, it can go up and the CISO can see how the risk for the company is altered. That's mm. actually a really powerful module. Oh, for the sure. other one, yeah, yeah. And it's causing us to be able to have some interesting discussions at uh, a level that may be a little bit higher in the organization than when we started. And then the other one is what we call third-party risk. So you have a supply chain, people who are you know, su supplying you with products, whether digital or not, and you want to go ahead and make sure that they are complying with what you think the best practices are. Typically, it's done with surveys today. You can create those surveys in Hyperproof, send them out, and check the health of your supply chain. So those are two additional modules, and we're contemplating a number of others to kind of expand, we think in 2024, we'll become a multi, a true multi-product company where you can kind of enter into hyperproof from any one of a, a number of different directions. Interesting. And do you have competitors? I mean, I'm guessing you do. And what sets you apart? Yeah, it's a busy space. I'd say we ended up starting in the mid-market. And there are, there are we call the sock-in-the-box competitors who are really about taking smaller organizations and getting them to the place where they can pass an audit, typically a SOC audit. So they're, they're selling the ability to get to the end of that audit. They typically sell it with an auditor that comes along with it and does the work. Um, and they tend to be quite prescriptive in what you have to do. So they say, if you want SOC, do these you know, 20 things or 30 things. And so it's a little bit less of a platform to express 
how you want your compliance to work and a little bit more of a checklist type mm. of approach. And, and it works for some small organizations that have very limited needs and just want to get to the end of that audit. Um, as soon as organizations are doing multiple programs and they need more capability, a lot of those users will end up coming to a hyperproof or a product like us. Um, the other competitors would be at the other end of the spectrum. Uh, they're worked with larger companies um, for very varied scenarios, but they may be more legacy in approach. They haven't made the, the real transition to cloud. They haven't done a lot in the way of, let's say, collaboration or integration with other cloud services or automation. They tend to be, in a way, like enterprise databases of compliance, you know, a little bit like a big CRM or uh, ERP system for compliance. And they're, they're usually the... Um, they're for a very few people in the organization to actually use. They haven't been democratized and they're just like a central system that most people won't interact with. We obviously want to change that and make sure that everybody interacts with the compliance system. So we compete with them on the basis of the capabilities and the modernization and the collaboration and you know some of those things. So there's really two totally different sides to the market. Got it. And what made you decide to take um, venture funding instead of just like self-fund it? Um, I mean, maybe that's a ridiculous question. No, it's not. No, it's not. And, and uh, actually, this, uh, the funding happened in a way I might not have expected it because I did a seed round with angel investors. And I also invested in Hyperproof myself um, at the end of 18. And then uh, we ended up doing another one at the end of 19. There was a lot of interest. And we did a third one at the end of 20. So we did three seed rounds before we took uh, any VC money. And some of that was just to kind of make sure that we could maintain control and make sure that we can uh, really work on the product and focus on where we need it to go uh, versus, for instance, doing bigger board meetings and other other kind of some overhead, some necessary overhead that you have to do when you're when you take VC money. But then in October of 21, we decided to take VC money and we were talking to a number of firms and we ended up with um, a firm called Toba Capital, which is the uh, family office of a gentleman named Vinnie Smith, who founded Quest Software and sold it to Dell. And uh, they're an emerging VC uh, with some great firms under, uh, you know, that they've invested in. And they've been an amazing partner for us. So Vinny and then Raj on that team, uh, he and I are the board members. Uh, and, you know, there's there's another independent board uh, position as well that we've been managing since then. And just, you know, uh, it's been a great relationship, a very different, actually, VC relationship than I've had before. Uh, the, the ones before were fine, but they were more formal and what yeah. that like big board meeting like you really feel like you're in like a partnership and in yeah. it together that's great and yeah. how would you describe i guess um you know you've got the microsoft experience you've got a zoopla and now you've got a chance to kind of really and now you're the ceo really a, a chance to kind of put your stamp on the mission the vision the culture like how would you describe all of that you said inclusive as far as one of the descriptive words I think, um, customer obsessed. Like, how would you describe overall hyperproof? Well, I'm gonna give an answer a little different than than hyperproof specific, and say a little bit of what I learned on the CEO side of things here. And I saw a little bit of this play out when I was doing some of the roles at Microsoft too, which is, you know, at a certain level, you say, well, what do these, what do all these managers in our lives do, right? What do they do, right? We're doing all the work down here. What do they do? And that's, you know. Uh, there's an answer to it. The answer is the managers has to set up the culture and the systems that are actually going to allow the organization to kind of, you know, grow in a way, what well, I'll say by itself, that doesn't mean you're not there, but it means that the right decisions and the right things happen when nobody's watching or when you're asleep, if you're, you know, if it's across multiple geographies, et cetera. And so you can think of it as like a self-learning, self-healing kind of system. In a way, the founders and the management is really there to create a machine of sorts. And I don't mean to dehumanize it. The machine has a very human quality to it. There's a culture. Uh, there's a way of interacting. Um, there's behaviors that we feel are really important for the success and longevity of the organization. Uh, and we do try to keep it to those behaviors that are very focused on how we will operate as an organization versus trying to you know, tell folks what to think. But you have to set up those important behaviors and culture. We were a very um, uh, culture-based organization from the get-go when we were under 10 employees. Uh, one of the first employees, their, their in-laws were HR consultants. And so we brought them in and created a whole culture 
for ourselves that we've actually evolved over the last five years. And it's a values-based culture. So, you know, based on a number of values that drive behaviors, that's what we care about. It's not rooted in very um, kind of high ideal statements that don't have a lot of applicability. Instead, it's rooted really in behaviors that we think mm. are productive for what we're trying to do. And I think the, that, that example that I'm giving, which is setting up the culture, it's one example. But then if you think about how many other things need to be set up, like how is it that we approach the market? What promises do we make and what can people count on us for? How do we think about servicing a customer? We do something, you know, where every customer is on Slack. They typically get, uh, you know, less than, you know, a half hour, certainly an hour response time. They're used to 48 hour response time from vendors. Those, those things, and, and you can see those kinds of policies and approaches are actually rooted in the culture because we want to be customer champions, right? Et cetera. So it's all a set of interrelated culture and uh, systems and tech underlying it, behaviors and ways of understanding problems. And the management of the company has a responsibility of both setting and resetting that each year. And that may even be the easier part. The harder part is getting everybody to understand it. Because a lot right. of times we talk about it and then it's kind of like, okay, well, what do you remember? Do you, do you remember your values in, in an elevator if you need to? Right. It's um, just in and in through one ear out the other. Exactly. What, makes, what makes somebody successful there, would you say? Is there a common thread among like a hyperproof employee that's a, uh, you know outlier? I think we you know, they have so it's interesting the way we did uh, our reviews. At, first of all, we want to make sure reviews are done a little bit more of an egalitarian way. It's not some you know curve that folks have to hit. It's really how are you executing versus kind of your potential and, and our culture. And the way we look at it is you know the baseline is it is it's interesting we say it this way, but we say is you're performing at a hyperproof level because mm. people just, and that, and that's the baseline. There's like levels above that, right? Yeah. And people understand that to be a high level yeah. of the high of the hyperproof level. So those are things like you know being very customer obsessed, right? Putting the customer first, um, really focusing on on innovation, um, being extremely uh, diverse and inclusive, right? Diversity is not enough. You can hire if your if your goal is to have certain numbers look a certain way. There's ways to you know you can do that but it's not really helping you. The, the, the thing you really want to build is an inclusive organization where everybody's opinion, if they're really varied, are not, not only do they feel heard, but it actually influences what you're doing. Yes. And then you, you can create an organization that reflects the world we live in better. So, you know, those are, those are some of the things customer obsessed, you know, is a big one, team player. So there's, you know, one or two more, but if you do those things, then you end up in a place, and this is this is kind of what, what we talked about at our last uh, all company, you know, we do a once a year, because we're remote, but we do a once a year, a physical meeting and just talking about, you know, you can really tell a lot about a culture of a company if, if you look at some of these, you know, outlier and wonderful employees and you ask the following question, are they trying to set themselves apart? And you, the knee-jerk reaction, and I saw this at Microsoft, which is a very fine company, obviously it's amazing, um, is yeah, the, the, the top performers are really trying to set themselves apart. And then you ask the question, what are they setting themselves apart from if everybody's so awesome? And then you don't have an answer to that. At Hyperproof, generally, I, I think I speak for most people, when I say the highest form of praise for somebody at our company is that they fit in. Not, and I don't mean fit in, you know, I mean their work, it's all respected and all. They're not, they're not necessarily uh, apart because they have such an amazing respect for what all the other employees are, the skills they have and what they're doing that the highest form of praise is to say, you belong in that group. And I think that is how we operate, right? So it's a different way of thinking. And it, it's a trust in those around you and your management. And it, it really heads off a lot of very uh, uncomfortable situations, which is like, well, wait, I'm doing this and everybody else is doing that. Yeah. You know, we, don't, we don't have that at the company. Yeah. Well, you mentioned that you're remote. Have you been remote the whole time or this is just a COVID thing? We, yeah, since COVID, you know, we, we went remote at that point and, you know, we went remote what we had to. And then during that time, we, and then you decided to stay that way. Hey, Has that been a good decision? I've been at a few of these CEO dinners where it's the hot topic and, you know, very, very heated. People have different opinions. Um, what have been some of the challenges and the benefits from that decision? It's been really good for, for us. Um, it's allowed for a couple of reasons. One is we are based in the Seattle market, Seattle, San Francisco, a couple others are really, you know, are very competitive markets, both for talent and then also, you know, pay and benefits are, are, are high and all that. So 
It allows us to get great talent in other places where we can also build a little bit more, um, both in a cost-effective way and also uh, help with time zones. You can have you know different folks taking on different customer issues on different time zones, things like that. Although we are U.S.-based, um, but no, it's it's been really great. Uh, I think the key for us is if you have the kind of culture that we've been talking about, where everybody really wants to excel, and you do you do it in a way where you're reasonably KPI-based, which our planning process really starts with 10 or 11 corporate level kind of KPIs and then works its way down. If everybody's really aligned to that, then it's it becomes pretty easy to see what folks are working on, their contributions, et cetera, which, put, which both puts them at ease that they can actually be recognized for their work, even though it's remote, and also allows, you know, let their manager to know uh, the kind of impact that they're having. So I think that for us, it's working well, but if you don't have strong measurement of how the business is running and where you're trying to get to, I actually think it would be pretty difficult in that case. Oh, yeah. Oh, for sure. You know what people are running towards. And, and by the way, that doesn't mean your people are not working hard. They may be running full speed, but you just don't know what they're running toward. Yeah, yeah exactly. You'll be running away for a long time until you know. Yeah. So you, you have to have a pretty strong culture in place to make it work. I agree. And so you talked about like running towards something and know what you're going toward. What are you guys going toward? What are the long-term goals for Hyperproof? When when you say like, hey, we've arrived, or I feel like I'm just crushing it, super successful, what are you measuring when you say that? I think we really think of it, you know, we, from the beginning, we haven't thought of it in, in only financial terms or things like that. Those are interesting markers and they are important. They're important to investors, et cetera. But most, most of the folks who really join Hyperproof for a combination of the quality of people at the company and, and then also the impact they can make. So I think the impact is probably... The big thing that we're looking at there and so we you know we've had a couple uh different uh taglines for the company bringing trust to life is kind of one that we've uh you know really kind of settled on and i think you think about what kinds of if you put the vessel as trust and you think about what kinds of technology right can be built in order to enable trust through an organization and its entire ecosystem it's really uh, a, a giant issue it's like a, you know a giant problem to be solved uh, if you if you take as an analog, look at like software quality. It's in a different area, but software quality. Everybody shares everything now. Software quality. You know, if you, you're down, let's say you shared on PagerDuty, like you just you know that's kind of the standard. That's not true for compliance, security, and all of those things. Like you know, you share when you need to if you have a breach. There's that, but you don't really share that. Hmm, you know, we weren't as compliant as we really ought to have been, right? Nobody shares that now. Mm. But really, to get um, everybody doing their best work. You, the world has to understand that people aren't going to be more perfect in their work on compliance and security than they would be in other areas. So there's a whole kind of substrate of how you really take these concepts and really kind of work them through an organization, give everybody the ability to contribute to them, and then give the organization the ability to be transparent about it out to its stakeholders in a way that really enhances and allows them to continue to improve. And that's really about trust as much as it is about anything else. That's really the vessel we're operating in. And then when you look at the different modules and the features and functions in the product, they'll all be going towards that, doing things that allow the organization to build internal and external trust. And given the environment that we're in, which is probably the is the worst, really, and the weakest oh, for, sure. for trust yeah. than it's ever been, it's just yeah. like, it couldn't be more important for us to really focus on it. Absolutely. Craig, is there anything else that you want our listeners to know about Hyperproof that we may not have touched on? I mean, I think we've, we've, we've hit a lot of it. You know, we're here, Hyperproof is, you know, it's, it's a unique new technology. Uh, we're here to help, you know, organizations support them in their compliance journeys, help them do their best work and really kind of help them aspire and achieve things that maybe they, they couldn't do on their own and see the, see the way towards those possibilities that, that didn't seem possible before. Um, but you know, we're, we're hiring folks. So there's, there's always that. Um, and yeah, you know, we're really excited to innovate in the space and just, we're excited to have people partner with us. We're a partner friendly company. Now, uh, if you, if you're interested in a solution for your organization, um, you know, come and talk to us is really what I would say. You know, there's just a lot of different ways we can collaborate and we're really interested in being a core part of, you know, kind of the ecosystem and the community around, uh, security and compliance and trust, because we think they're all kind of, you know, moving into you know, kind of one view. So just come and talk to us. Uh, that's all I would say for folks. I love that. And, yeah. And, awesome. then, and, then, and then one thing just about entrepreneurship, and we've talked about it a bit, is just, you know, uh, 
go ahead and do it. You know, bet bet on yourself. Do it in the right circumstance, but take that bet on yourself. Create some, you know, areas where you have some criteria or some yellow tape areas where you say, hey, I'm not going to go past that. But, you know, do it. You know, you only live once. And I, I know that if you're somebody who's thinking about it uh, and you can make a go of it, you'd really enjoy it. Because like from my perspective, I wouldn't necessarily want to really go back to any large organization, even though I've loved them in the past. And I think that's how you'll feel. And if I could personally be of any help on that, you know, I want to get back to the community. Let me know. I have had people contact me or say that they've heard podcasts or other things before. And we've had great discussions about it. So happy to try to connect you to anyone in my network and get back a little bit. Because when I first got into entrepreneurship, I found so much comfort. I was in Seattle at the time. And I found so much comfort in the Seattle community, including yourself, Shauna, and Aww. others. Yeah, it was just great for people to, you know, you wake up with like a different different purpose and everybody just takes you seriously. You know, they're like, yeah. oh, you're going to do entrepreneurship? Great. I love I love this. being inspired by people like you. You're, you're definitely an inspiration. I'm excited to see what you continue to to do with Hyperproof and everything else in your life. You're just a total badass. And um, and I'm psyched that you're thriving. And no surprise. But my final question for you is what fuels you? I think for me now, it's, it's, it's about impact. It's just about making a difference. Anything that happens financially, great. I really don't care too much about like, recognition overall. I just want to have impact in an area that matters. I think that's really the most any of us can do with our lives. And so I think I have an amazing opportunity given where I was born and, you know, how I was able to get educated. And I just want to try to make impact for as long as I can. Uh, and that's, that's, that's really it. Thank you for listening to the What Fuels You podcast. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Spotify, and follow us on social media to keep up with the latest news and episodes. You can also contact us at podcast at fueltalent.com to provide feedback, ask questions, and share topics or guests you would like us to cover in the future. We hope you feel inspired by our guests and that we have helped fuel your day. Join us next time for another episode of What Fuels You.